0: Well, once again, it's, it's, just a, it's been a joy to be with you all week, and thank you for being a, a very gracious group of people to, to communicate with, and I would like to, I, I, I sort of changed horses in the middle of the stream here, um, I was going to talk on Living by the Spirit, but this topic that I'd like to share with you this evening is why I believe what I believe, why I'm an Anabaptist. And years ago, I was asking myself the question repeatedly, what does a biblical church look like? Uh, and, and so I was, I was really just pondering this and, and working on, on, on just processing what, what does a biblical church look like? So you'll, what you'll hear tonight is, is sort of what, what flowed out of there. And... Then talking with my brother Frank, many of you know my brother Frank, and he t- does a lot of church history teaching, so his, uh, his information has been very helpful, and you'll see some of his material in here tonight. But I'd like to talk to you about why I believe what I believe. You have a handout there, and I did want to make a correction on that handout uh, on the diagram down below. And maybe what we can do is we can talk about it when we get there. But I'll, I'll just tell you right now, if you look clear to the left of that diagram, it says early church. And, and I wanted to correct that. Instead of early church, I wanted to put in there first church. Okay? There's a difference between first church and early church. The first church is the first 100 years, and that's when the scriptures were written. That's when our de- the disciples lived. That's when Christ walked on earth. And that's the first church. The early church is the first 300 years. But what we want to look at is the practice. We, what I see is, at, well, well, we'll talk about it as we go along. So I just wanted to make that correction. It should say first church. So when I get, when I get back home with, at my computer, I want to make that correction. So that next time I print this off, it's going to say first church instead of early church. So foundations of belief, why, why do I believe what I believe? It, every belief system has foundations. Our, our worldview, everyone has a worldview. Your worldview is your philosophy. And we're going to try and cover a lot of ground because we're going to have a shorter session. And, and also, I just wanted to tell you, as soon as the class is over, I'm going to be getting out of here fairly quickly because I got another, about a two-hour drive ahead of me this evening to join my wife at a cabin. So... Uh, I'm going to try and scoot pretty quickly afterwards. But I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, it's been a real joy to be here with you. Um, anyway, uh, everyone has a worldview. It's your philosophy. It's, it, and we have a philosophy. That's a big word. But we, we all have a, a system of thought process that we process the world by and how we think. And our worldview as believers flows out of our view of God and His Word how we see God and how we see His Word. That's why we've been looking at these tools of, of looking at um, of our identity and, and correcting our wrong concepts of God because, you see, our worldview flows out of our view of God and our view of His Word. Now, where does, where does our view of God and His Word come from? Well, our view of God and His Word depends greatly on our point of reference. That jumped out at me a number of years ago. That, that why, did you ever wonder why we can all read the same Bible and come up with so many different churches? Do you ever wonder that? Yeah, I mean, and years ago, everybody was reading the King James, so it wasn't different versions, okay? It was, it was, why can we read all these different, why can all these churches be reading the same Bible and come up with all these different ways of looking at life and practicing it? Well, it has to do with our point of reference. That jumped out at me years ago, and that's, what, that's where I started putting this teaching together. Our point of reference determines our view of Scripture. That's why we can read the same Scripture and come up with different churches and different ways of practicing, practicing things. It's because of our point of reference. So let's talk about this. There's three key points of reference. Number one it's Catholic and Orthodox. And that that basically flowed out of the, the Constantine when he merged the church and state. Any anybody of you, of you don't like history, it's only going to be brief, so you can bear with me a little bit. But Constantine merged the church and state. Before that, before that, the church was a persecuted minority for the first 300 years of the church. It was a persecuted minority, and then um, and then Constantine came into power as the Roman emperor, and he had this vision, and he accepted Jesus, and, and he became supposedly a Christian. And, and so, he merged the church and state, and that's where the merger of the church and state came from. And I don't know if you ever heard the story how he, how he baptized his army. Did you ever hear how he baptized his army? He marched his, he marched his army through the river to baptize them, but he tell, told them to hold their swords up in the air, so they wouldn't baptize their swords. Okay, so, so see, even clear back then, now we were starting to develop a thought process, a, a a a theology, because now you had the merger of church and state. That also brought on infant baptism. It no because now they baptized infants because that was also your citizenship. Okay. When, you were, when you were born, you were baptized, now you were a Roman citizen, you were also a Christian, and, and so your, your baptismal certificate was both your, your, your uh, certificate of, of citizenship in, in the Roman emper, in Empire, as well as the church, and that's where the Roman Catholic Church started. Okay, so that, the Const, uh, Constantine, and, and then Augustine came about 100 years later, 400 and uh, AD and I, I say that Augustine came up with theologically correct ways to disobey Christ. Okay, uh, he had—he was a deep thinker. He was a good thinker, and and so uh, he, a lot of his writings are still available, and people quote him a lot. He's the one that came up with the just war theory. Okay, the just—you ever hear of the just war theory? The just war theory is—it's okay to go to war if you're going to liberate somebody, or if you're going to to help out a, an oppressed uh, a group of people, it's okay to go to war then. It's not okay to go to war just to be an aggressor. So the just war theory means that you can go to liberate. So interesting. How many of you remember the Bushes as presidents? Okay, okay. Uh, the first one, G- George Herbert Walker, he, uh, he's the first one, he went, they went to war against, uh, let's see, Iraq? Um, Kuwait. Kuwait well they, they went to liberate Kuwait okay, but they were fighting against Saddam Hussein uh, of, of Iraq and, and it was so interesting before he, went, before he declared war um, Billy Graham was invited to the White House and they had a meeting and they came up with the, the, the way to express this to the, the nation and so the, uh, the people woke up in the United States and they heard this statement the liberation of Kuwait has begun now, do you hear that? The liberation of Kuwait has begun. That's a just war theory statement. The next George Bush, he went into uh, Afghanistan. Uh, he didn't quite get it. He didn't, he, he didn't have his theology quite like his dad was and he just, he just went in and, and, uh, and it was more of an aggressor and it, wasn't, it wasn't, didn't fit the just war theory. Anyway, that was, a, that was a total bunny trail there but sometimes that can be interesting. So Catholic and Orthodox come out of of the Constantinian synthesis of church and state and and Augustinian uh, theology. The next point of reference is Protestant. And and they see the scripture as they see through the Reformation. And the Reformation took place around 1500. And that was was Knox and and, uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. And, and so that was the, the, Re- the Reformation that started by Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to the church door Wittenberg and declaring that there were so many things wrong, there was a whole list of grievances against the Catholic Church. And that started, that started another series of churches, which the first one would have been the Lutheran Church, named after Martin Luther. So as you, and I, and I could just keep on telling stories about, about those things. If my brother Frank was here, he would tell you more stories because he knows a lot more. But, uh, Martin Luther started the Lutheran church did you know that, that Martin Luther was very anti-Semitic he said the only good Jew was a dead Jew Okay, and so here, here we have these churches these, these churches that, that were, were founded by men whose theology had some major major flaws how about John Calvin Okay, John Calvin is, is sort of the, uh, the, the people that the, the today's evangelicals would look to to get a lot of their theology from. And uh, he, he came up with the, uh, the five points of Calvinism. Well, in, in that, uh, it's total, and I, I'm not going to try and list them. We don't, have, we don't have to go there. But John Calvin, who the evangelicals would, would hold up, he had one of his dissenters, somebody who disagreed with him, he had him burned at the stake. Now that sounds really Christian, doesn't it? You see, when, when we look at the foundations of some of these belief systems, we see some major flaws. And so Protestant is scripture seen through the Reformation. And now the next one is Anabaptist. And that, that, was, that flowed out of The Reformation, but we we would call that the Radical Reformation. And most of you probably know your church history on that one. But uh, Ulrich Zwingli was a college professor, and he had a group of students that they were just studying, they were studying the scriptures in four different languages, and they were they were just doing it as an academic study. What was interesting is they were studying and they were reading through the scriptures, the New Testament, they started seeing that that a believer, a believer needed to be baptized as a believer. It was a believer's baptism. It wasn't child, child baptism, infant baptism was not okay. It was, it was a believer's baptism. And so, and, and so that they looked at, they looked at each other and they said, well, this isn't right. We we need to baptize ourselves. We had to, we have to be rebaptized, and that's what the word Anabaptist means. It means to be rebaptized, and so they were rebaptizing each other. And they went to Ulrich Zwingli, and they said, "Ulrich Zwingli, uh, this is this must be a believer's baptism, and 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 this is what the this is what the scriptures teaches." And he said, "Well, we need to go back to the town council, and the town council will decide." whether it's a believer's baptism or not. And Simon Stumpf, one of his students said, Masters Wingley, the town council cannot decide. The Holy Spirit has already decided. And that was sort of the birth of the Anabaptist movement. And so here you have these group of students who came under conviction studying the scriptures. I gotta tell you a little bit of a bunny trail story. In, in here in Myerstown is the Evangelical School of Theology. Uh, Dr. Dr. Kirby Keller was uh, president of the college for quite a while and he was one of my customers at Eblings and he came in there one time and he says, hey Jason, we're doing an Anabaptist history co- course, would you like to take it? And, and I thought, well this would be interesting, but it was right in the busy season and I wouldn't have mind taking it for credits because I was working on, 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 a, on a degree years ago and, and so I said, yeah, but I, I said, I, I, I can't, I don't have the energy to put into it. He says, just audit it. So I audited this class. It's an Anabaptist history class in, in here in Myerstown. There it was a small class. I think it might've been nine students. I think I was the only Anabaptist, I was the only Anabaptist in the class. But we, we used Estep's Anabaptist story as our textbook. And then there was also a thick book called the Anabaptist Writings. I can't remember what the title of it was or who put it together, but it was simply Writings of Anabab- Our Anabaptist Forefathers. I found this very fascinating, and it was so interesting. As we studied along through that class period, that semester, I, one of the students said, you know, I used to think the Anabaptists were a bunch of kooks. He says, but, he says, they believed what they believed, and he says they were willing to die for it. He says, and it makes sense. He says, it was a believer's baptism. Now, what's fascinating is, is I don't remember what, what denomination the evangelical school of theology is, but they baptize infants. And so here they're saying, it is a believer's baptism. And the professor was sitting there, and he says, yeah, he, he, he could see that. And I had the gall or the nerve to look at him and say, S- so, uh, doctor, and I can't remember what his what his last name was, but I called him by name. I said, so are you still going to baptize babies? <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. But he's, he says, I'm going to have to give this some thought. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? They thought these Anabaptists were a bunch of kooks, but in studying what they believed and seeing what they, and, and seeing how it was supported in the Scriptures, they actually, the students were starting to say, yeah, this is right. You see, our belief system is... And here's what I want you to hear I'm not an Anabaptist because I'm, I was born that way I, I started going I, I, I was very interested in counseling I started going to Lancaster Bible College for a counseling degree I, I wanted to learn how to counsel I was, I was sort of disappointed and it was so interesting uh, um, Glenn Stauffer was my shop manager it's Eddie's brother and, and so he was managing eblings while I was going to school well, during that time, he, he, had, he had AIDS through hemophilia and blood transfusions. During that time, he got sick and died, and I had to drop out of school to manage the business again, so I never finished the, the degree. But I learned a lot while I was there. It was fascinating to go there and, and hear, hear how, how they processed information. I took the 1st and 2nd Corinthians course there, and the, the, the professor there, uh, I, I thought, wonder what he's going to do with 1 Corinthians 11 when he gets to 1 Corinthians 11. I, I thought, wonder how he's going to deal with this. And you know what he did when we got to 1 Corinthians 11? He says, now, he says, I know some of you are going to struggle with this, but he says, the scriptures say that a woman is to have her head covered when she's praying and prophesying. And, uh, and one of the students raised their hand. They said, Dr. Kime, uh, does your wife wear a veiling, wear a headship covering? And he said no, and they said, "Well, why not?" <laughs> you know, it's in a college level, you get some real pushback. And he says, "Well, he says read the scriptures. He says it doesn't say a husband's supposed to subjugate his wife. It says a wife is to be submissive to her husband." And I go, "Ooh, <laughs> okay." So you can you can read into that whatever you care to read into it. But it isn't. I thought I thought it was very fascinating to hear a a Greek major say that the scriptures actually taught that a woman was to have her head covered during praying and prophesying. So that was fascinating. You know, when I, when I look at those things, I go, wow, uh, my belief system started getting strengthened because I started seeing some of the things that we believed. It wasn't just because we were Anabaptists. I'm not an Anabaptist. You see, one of the things I was going through, I was going through some really, fr- I told you I went through two church splits while I was going to school. Some of that was happening and it was very painful. And church was sort of dis- disappointing and discouraging to me. And when I was at Lancaster Bible College, I started getting involved with Campus Crusade for Christ because I saw that they were reaching out and touching other people's lives. So I went to a couple of their, of their training sessions. And you know what? I, I, I remember sitting there at the table we were eating, and I, I was listening to the conversation. And all of a sudden it struck me. I heard the same kind of talk that I heard in our own groups, just a different flavor. And I heard that they were not—they were struggling among themselves on just different issues. I thought maybe they didn't have those issues. Yes, they had the same—they had the same type of issues, only in a just a bit different flavor. And then I started talking to my brother Frank about it. And Frank's pretty versed in church history. And and you know that was healthy for me. It was a healthy experience because it actually solidified what i believe and why i believe it. so i'm going to sh- i'm going to share some of those things this evening here. so those are the three key points of reference. catholic, protestant and anabaptist. so here's part of that chart that you have down there and so on your on your chart it shows it shows early church but up here it says first church and i would like if you have a pen just just cross out early church and write first church in there because it, the, the church had already started, started running into snags as it went into the second 100 years and the third 100 years. But the first, the first 100 years is, is, is the time of Christ. It was the time of the apostles and it was the time when the scriptures were written. Okay? So what we look at here is there's Constantine, that's around 300 A.D. There's Augustine, 400 A.D., And then along, you go up through time, you have the Catholic Church, and and most of you have probably studied some church history, but that was uh, through, as as that period of time went up through there with the Catholic Church, that was a period of the Dark Ages, it was a period of the Crusades, Joan of Arc. uh, Anyway, there was a lot of, of dark things happening. There was lots of nasty things happening, and that's when Martin Luther came along around 1500. That's where the Protestant Reformation started. And he was he was a Catholic monk, and he was saw, seeing all these atrocities going on in the Catholic Church, and he he had enough of it, and he finally nailed the, 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 his his series of grievances on the Church of, of the Catholic Church, and that created all kinds of problems for him. Then he was a hunted man, and he had to run. But anyway, out of the out of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, uh, that, that started a, a change of, of the way people were looking at life. Now, that blue line that just came up there, if you want, if you see that blue line there, okay, that blue line, there... There, now the main the main group of people the Catholic Church ruled and once again it was infant baptism and if, if your your birth certificate was also your citizenship and that's why you see you couldn't that's that's why if you were a heretic that's why you were executed that's why you were killed because you couldn't disfellowship somebody here in our church if our churches now if somebody is misbehaving and they just will not cooperate and they're living in sin. We, we excommunicate them. But if your citizenship and your church membership is the same thing, well, you, can't dis, you, you can't disfellowship them. You can't excommunicate them. So, because what do you do with them? They're, they're one and the same. So, you have to get rid of them, and so they would execute people who were, not, who were dissenters and, and did not get along with the church. But... There was always this quiet of the land. It's, it's, it's that, that, blue, that blue line up there. The Donatists, the Waldensians, they were, they were followers of Jesus and they would, they would meet in caves, they would meet quietly. They were called the quiet of the land because they worshipped God according to their conscience and according to the scriptures. But they did it quietly because if they would have done it openly, they would have been executed. Then the Radical Reformation comes along And we already talked about how Simon Stump said that the the Holy Spirit has decided, and that started the Anabaptist movement or the Radical Reformation. And so then that's when we have the Mennonites coming up through, and now through time you uh, you no longer just have the Catholic Church coming up mainline, now you have the Reformed and the Catholic and the Lutheran. It's interesting, I grew up in Bethel, and it's so interesting in Bethel, uh, you have... At, at right across right across from the school on the same side of the street on the left side of 501 you you go to the school and that church on the on the first church on the left is the lutheran church but as you're coming into town the big church stone church on the right that's the reformed church and you get outside of town and you get the little murky church that was out there that's the church of the brethren so you had you you had the reformed church and the lutheran church and the anabaptist church you see when they came to america now you had freedom of religion, and so all three of those groups could get along together. Whereas in Europe, they were killing each other. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how America brought so much freedom, and today we still have that freedom. But do you realize that that the biggest persecutor of the Anabaptists was the church? It wasn't the state. It was it was the Lutherans. It was the Reforms reformed. They were all, and the Catholics, they were all killing the Anabaptists because the Anabaptists believed that it was a believer's baptism and they were doing rebaptisms, and that was, that was heresy. And so they were all trying to kill the Anabaptists. And all of the original Zwingli students were all killed, but they had such strong beliefs that they had shared their faith, and it kept on growing and growing and growing. It kept on multiplying. And, and, and the Anabaptist church grew and grew and grew. So as you have the Anabaptists going up through there, you have the Amish, you have the Mennonites, and you have the Hutterites. Those are, that's, that's Jacob Ammon, uh, uh, Menno Simons, and, and Jacob Hutter. Those were the, the leaders who brought a solidarity after the original founders were executed and were martyred. These men sort of brought an order to the Anabaptist movement, and that's why you still have these groups still here today, the Amish, the Hutterites, and the Mennonites, okay? Now, what about the Church of the Brethren? Well, the Church of the Brethren came in around 1700, and they were not Anabaptists, they were Pietists, okay? I, I was part of the Dunker Brethren, I was raised Dunker Brethren, I was Dunker Brethren until just a few years ago, about 10 years ago, maybe 12, and, and we were Pietists, and there's a difference between Pietists and, and Anabaptists. How many of you know that, Okay? There's a differences in the way we see things. Our theology is a little bit different, but... Um, man, Eddie, my, my brain's taking a vacation here. Uh, the, the founder of, of the Brethren Movement... Help me out. Alexander Mack. Alexander Mack. You ever hear of Alexander Mack? He was the founder of the Brethren Movement around the 1700s. And he was greatly influenced by... Um, and, and a, a Mennonite itinerant minister who was on horseback and riding around preaching, he greatly influenced Alexander Mack. And so that brought the Anabaptists and the Pietists together. And so our belief systems and our practices are are very similar as you walk up through time. Very similar. So here we are today. Here's Protestant evangelicalism, and here we are today. So the question is: Is what should we be doing today? And here's here's what I see. Uh, I, I see that here's these point of references. The Protestant Reformation, the, they they referenced Augustine and Constantine, and they said that was a good thing. Okay, they said that was a good thing for the church and state to merge, and 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 the church to to. Become a more, uh, a greater organization, and and have a greater presence in the world. That was a good thing. So the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, uh, Zwingli, Knox, Calvin, they always said that that uh, Constantine and Augustine. That was a good thing. But to uh, but the Anabaptists, they said no, no. We want to go back, and we're going to go back, and we are going to live and practice. Hear this, brothers and sisters. They're going to live and practice as the first church lived and practiced. They're going to believe the scriptures, and they're going to live it like the first church did. They're going to go back and read the scriptures, and they're going to interpret it from that perspective. Okay, so here we are with Protestant evangelicalism today, and... Protestant evangelicalism points to the Protestant Reformation and they say that is a good thing. So now the question with us is, is what do we say? What's what's our perspective on this? So here we are. Now see those lines? Okay, here's what I would like to tell you is that where I I see that we struggle as Anabaptist people. So I'm looking at point of reference so here we are today and there you see a point there you see another point there you see another point i'm going to use i'm going to use my background as an illustration in 1926 the dunkard brethren people broke away from the church of the brethren okay most of you know there's a church of the brethren in here in myerstown they broke away from the church of the brethren because the church of the brethren was going worldly Hey, in 1926, the T- Dunkard Brethren Church started. I came along and was born in 1949, and, and I grew up hearing lots of sermons. That, so our reference point as Dunkards was 1926. Now, just, just hear what I'm saying, because this, I think, is very crucial. My, our, my, our point of reference as Dunkard Brethren was 1926. So I grew up hearing sermons why we should not be like the Mother Church. I heard lots of sermons like that. Now, I don't have, I, Frank, if Frank was here, he could tell you when the, East, when the, when the Keystone group started, and some, somebody here can too, and I'm, you don't have to say it, or, or Weaverland Conference, or I, Eastern was 1968, okay, I, I know that one, uh, and so, so we have, what happens is, is our different groups today have different reference points, and what happens is, is we go back and say, we broke from the Mother Church then, and we are not gonna be like the Lancaster Conference. Just like the, the Dunker Brothers said, we're not going to be like the Church of the Brethren. Why? Because they were going worldly. And even today, right now, the Church of the Brethren is also struggling. The Church of the Brethren now is struggling because some of them are breaking away from the, from the Church of the Brethren. And right, right now, Heidelberg is, is, is struggling, trying to decide what to do. To, and and they, they probably will eventually pull away. I'm, I'm saying too much because this is going... This is going out there. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, won't I? But you see, what happens is is the Church of the Brethren is accepting homosexuality and LGBT. And when you go to their conferences, you're going to, going to have actually LGBT and, and, and homosexual groups with, with booths there at the, at the, at the uh, Church of the Brethren conferences. Can you imagine that? Okay, and so you see, there has to be some decisions. Now, here's what I want you to hear. With, changing, with those point of references... Whenever you get your identity, when you get your identity out of who you are not, you become a reactionary group. Does that make any sense? Now you're going to make choices and decisions because of who you are not, not because of who you are. Remember how we talked about identity, knowing who you are as a child of God and in Christ? You see that is so crucial and that is so important. But when we have changed, we've changed our our reference points, now we go back and say, there, we broke away from there. So we're not going to be like them. We started it right now, and now our way is the right way. You know, I, you know what? I get concerned about those things because that's that not necessarily is healthy at all. In fact, I don't think it is healthy. So what, what, should we, what, would she, what should we be doing? Well, here's what I do see is I see that today I see our young people and I see even older people We're greatly influenced by the evangelical movement. We're greatly influenced by them. We listen to their music. We listen to WDAC. Or Boyertown, right? And we hear we hear their preaching, and we hear some good preaching. Some of those preachers are really good. You know, uh, David Jeremiah. Yeah, you know, we uh, people used to hold Ravi Zacharias up on high because he was a really good teacher, and I used to really like his teaching. So you see, you hear you hear very good trained teachers and preachers, and so our and we listen to their music and we and we read their books. We read their books. When you go to the bookstore and, and get a Christian book, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out of an evangelical perspective. So I want to talk about what does that look like? What does that look like? And so the question is, is what should we do today? And here's, here's what, what I believe we need to do. Is, and I don't think we have a choice. If we're going to be a biblical church, here's what I see that we must do. We must go back. We must go back. And we must read the scriptures and we must live the scriptures and practice the scriptures as the first church did. I believe that with all my heart. How do we do that? Well, I, I just I keep asking the father, would you give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I can read the scriptures? And instead of you see, we have this tendency. I don't know. Well, we'll get there. I think it's on your handout, too, but we'll get there down the road here. We read we read the scriptures through our cultural filters. You, do you see that? Do you understand that? We read the scriptures through our cultural filters. And somehow we, we do that. That's the way we do. But that's the way the evangelicals do too. They read it through their cultural filter. Okay, the Hutterites will read it through their cultural filter. The Amish will read it through their cultural filter. And, and so that's what we do. So somehow we must do our best to, to read the scriptures. And ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate them so that we can understand what the heart of God really is and practice it and live it. The worldview and scripture interpretation of the first church was founded and grounded in the presence and teaching of the living God who became flesh and dwelt among us, and he inspired holy men to write. The worldview and scripture interpretation of the reformers originated from the Constantinian synthesis the Council of Nicaea, and Augustinian theology. I would like to illustrate Reformation theology or Reformed theology. This is big because that's what, the, that's what today's evangelical culture is, is built on, is, is Reformed theology. Years ago, I'd get up early in the morning to study, to preach, and uh, I would I, on a Sunday morning Ravi Zacharias would come on WDAC at 8 o'clock in the morning. I really enjoyed listening to him preach so, or, or teach. So I would listen to him. He would be on for like 15 minutes, and, and I really enjoyed hearing him teach. I remember one morning he was teaching about, uh, he was teaching about how that, that, that the New Testament teachings would teach that it is wrong. It violates the heart of God to go to war and kill people. Did you hear that? that came from Ravi, that it it violates the heart of God to go to war and kill people. And I'm going, wow, I'm hearing Anabaptist teaching here. And I'm going, that's amazing. And then he made a comment. He made this comment. He says, because we live in an evil society, there are times when a Christian must choose between the lesser of two evils. And I, out loud, I said, Ravi, no. Nobody else was in the room, but out loud, I just said, Ravi, no, no. And I couldn't understand it. I go, why, why would he say something like that? So 15 minutes later, James Montgomery Boyce would come on and teach. He was, a, he was an, an expository preacher. He was a, he was a professor in the, at the Philadelphia School of the Bible. He was an excellent expository preacher, and I loved expository preaching. So I don't know, this was months later I was listening to James Montgomery Boyce and he was teaching away and he was teaching on divorce and remarriage. He was teaching on divorce and remarriage like I never heard it taught before. He went from Genesis to the end of the scriptures. He covered the scriptures and he talked about how that God hates divorce. And he says there, is, there are no reasons that God gives that's acceptable in the church to accept remarriage. He says, sometimes you can't prevent divorce, but remarriage constitutes adultery. And he taught it like we believed it. Amazing. And I was getting ready to teach through a series on divorce and remarriage. And so I sent off for that information. The next Monday, I, 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 call, I wrote the number down at the end of the program. And I, I called down and I said, I would like James Montgomery Boyce's material. To show you how long ago this was, I got two cassettes in the mail. You know what a cassette was? You, you remember cassettes? <laughs> and it was and a book called Sex, Marriage, and Divorce. Okay? So I go, wow, okay, so now I have these resources. So I'm reading through this book, and it just, it just jumped out at me, and I'm going, now wait a minute, and I'm going to show you what I read. I'm going to show you what I read. I have it here. So I told you about Ravi Zacharias saying, because we live in an evil society, there are times when a Christian must choose between the lesser of two evils. And then I read this, okay? Oh, no, before I... I, I James Montgomery Boyce said something very similar. I'll, I'll show it to you. But I heard James Montgomery Boyce say the very same thing. Because, because we live in an evil society, there's times when a Christian must choose between the lesser of two evils, and sometimes that means divorce. And I'm going, no, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. I, I go... Guess what I did? I went to my brother, Frank. I said, Frank, what's going on here? And he, I told him what I heard from both Robbie and, and, and Boyce. And Frank is a school teacher. He don't give you answers. He gives you homework. He says, well, he says, uh, you need to re- read the church sect theory by, anyway, I can't even think of the fellow's name anymore. I said, "Where am I going to find that?" Well, he said, "The Evangelical School of Theology would have it in their library." <laughs> and then he says, "You also need to read um, Harold Bender's *The Anabaptist Vision*. Does anybody? Is it, or the, yeah, The Anabaptist Vision. Does anybody ever? Does, has anybody ever read it? Yeah. I would highly recommend everyone to read Harold Bender's *The Anabaptist Vision*. So, so what I did is, is I went to Harold Bender's *The Anabaptist Vision*, and here's what I read. So. It, the, it's, here it says, the Anabaptist vision may be further clarified by comparison of the social ethics of the four main Christian groups of the Reformation period, the Catholic, the Reformed, the Lutheran, and the Anabaptist. Lutheranism said that since a Christian must live in a world order that remains sinful, he must make a compromise with it. As a citizen, he cannot avoid participation in the evil of the world. So here, so here it is. Do you see it? Here Harold Bender is showing that this is, re, this is Reformed theology. For instance, in making war, and listen listen to the reasoning, for instance, in making war and for this his only recourse is to seek forgiveness by the grace of God, only within his personal private experience can the Christian truly Christianize his life. Can you, do you see what they're saying? They're saying that they're, because we live in an evil society, there's times when a Christian must choose between the lesser of two evils. The Anabaptists rejected this view completely, since for him no compromise dare be made with evil. Uh, time's getting away. way. I'm going to step it up. It's going to really get machine gunny. Okay? Just, just bear with me. Okay? The Christian may in no circumstances participate in any conduct of the existing social order, which is contrary to the spirit and teaching of Christ in apostolic practice. Would you believe it? Do you agree with that? Of course we do. This is what the Anabaptists believed in. So, here, here is what I read in... I want you to, I just want you, we're, we're going to go over this. I know it's a fair amount of reading, but I want, to, I want you to get this. I want you to understand Reformation theology. I don't even think the majority of evangelical preachers and teachers understand Reformation theology. I don't want to think they understand the roots of it. So just pay attention to how they process information. There are cases in which one of the spouses is a Christian and the other is not. What's a Christian to do in these circumstances? This is a situation that Paul also faced, not only in Corinth, but through the Greek cities. His advice was this First, the Christian should always stay with the unbelieving spouse, if at all possible. For, says Paul, how do you know that you will be the means by which God will save your husband or your wife? However, it's also possible that the unsaved spouse will not stay with the Christian. And in that case, Paul's second point of advice is to let the non-Christian go, but the Christian is therefore to remain unmarried. How many of you agree with that? I do. Okay? Okay. Now, let's, let's go to the next page. And, and, and I put the emphasis in here, okay? I put the emphasis in here. My fourth point is based on the fact that we live in an imperfect world. And here I am reading away. I hadn't heard this when he was teaching it on the radio, but in his booklet, I ran into this. So I put it into this teaching. My fourth point is based on the fact that we live in an imperfect world. And this means that there will always be circumstances in which a Christian will have to choose the lesser of two evils. In some circumstances, this could be divorce. For instance, and look what his illustration is. We may imagine a woman married to a brute of a husband, a man who spends her money on drink and then deserts her while she must raise and educate the children. Now, under the laws of the United States, if there's no divorce, it's entirely possible for the man to return at some date just when the children are ready to go to college on the little the wife has earned and claim the money and waste it. In this situation, I believe it would be better for the wife to initiate the divorce, even if she is a Christian, for her responsibility is also to the children and to their future. What do you think of that? Do you think that saving your children's college education is worth violating the scriptures? and divorcing. Do you agree with that? Anybody here agree with this? You see, and now, but, but that's not the thing that grips me the most. The next couple paragraphs, or the next paragraph, these, these two, look what it says. There is hardly a matter in the Christian church today that's treated with more laxity than divorce and remarriage. As a result, it is always easy to get our standards from what other people do or say or from what we should like the Bible to say, but we must not do that. We must be people of the book and we must not lower its standards. What did you just hear? Tell me what you just heard. Yeah. Doubles. What's that? But can you imagine? I, see, I can't even... I can't wrap my brain around this kind of thinking. I can't. It just doesn't make sense. To just, to make this comment up here and to have written the paragraphs before that. Does that make any sense to you? You see, he just lowered the standards of the book, and then he says we must not do it. End of quote. Did Jesus, here's the question, did Jesus ever choose between the lesser two evils? What do you say? What's your answer? No. No, can we? No. No. Here's you know, here's a here's my diagram of a New Testament church. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Okay. And on the one side, Deuteronomy 4:2 says, "You shall not add unto the word which I command you." Now, now here's when I look at a biblical church, now we're talking about where we are today in our cultures today. When you, look at the, when you look at the broad spectrum of, of the Amish Mennonite brethren, okay, you shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall you take anything from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. So what he's saying is, is don't add to my word, don't take away from my word. Do you think that's serious? Do you think that's serious? He says, if you add to my word, I'm going to add to your plagues. And if you take away from my word, I'm going to take away you from the book of life. Yeah, that's pretty sobering, isn't it? Isn't that serious? Okay. So when you have law, now just hear me. I, I, this, this is what this is. This, this concerns me greatly, and now the alarm goes off. Got ten minutes here. Wow. But this concerns me greatly because this cover this starts touching us where we are. Okay. On the other side, we have license. So we have law and we have license. Grace is grace and truth is in the middle, and and so what you do is when you take when you take truth out of balance, word and truth out of balance is on one side, and then you have, you have spirit and grace out of balance on the other side. And so the evangelical church will take grace, spirit and grace out of balance, and, and, and the, the traditional groups will take word and truth out of balance. So you'll have law on one side, you'll have license on the other side, but in, in the middle there's grace and truth. And the script, New Testament scriptures would tell us there's liberty but in the law, it says there's bondage under law. Okay, it's in Galatians. I, I have, I have a, I should have made another handout that has all this stuff spelled out on it. But on the on license side, there's bondage. The one you're in bondage to law, the other you're in bondage to to sin. Under grace and truth, there, there's spirit. On the, under law, there's flesh. Because you trust the flesh to keep the law, you you trust your own ability to keep the law, and their license, you're living in the flesh. It, it's okay because grace covers it all, so you can live in the flesh. Okay, here's the thing: I told you that, I think the first night, how that in the in the tradition, more the traditional groups, there's there's a lot more sexual sin, there's a lot more moral failure in those groups, and here's why. You see, you see, when you trust in the flesh. Instead of living under grace and truth and spirit and and liberty, when you trust in the flesh to keep the rules, or whether you live in the flesh because grace is going to cover it all, one is you're trusting in the flesh, the other you're living in the flesh, you know they're both the same sin, they're still the flesh. And when you live in the flesh or you trust in the flesh, you're going to sin in the flesh. And that's why I believe we have moral failure in the traditional groups. God wants us to live under grace and truth. There's life there. There's death on the one side. There's death on the other side. There's safety in the middle. But it feels safe. It feels safe under law. And it and then it, people think they're safe under grace. But you see this pendulum swings. Did you ever see people come out of law? And they don't stay in grace and truth. They just keep on swinging, right? And they go into... And, and you know, I've seen it go the other way. People that come out of... Out of uh, they come out of the world, and they'll swing right through grace and truth, and they'll go right into, you see that? I, I, you watch this all the time. It, it happens. God wants us, and so here's what, I, here's what I think we need to see, and here's what, what I see that church leaders need to lead people in, in grace and truth. And when you have people in grace and truth, you have, you have that pendulum going, grace, truth, grace, truth, tick, talk. And you see, if we as a church try and get it to stop right smack in the middle, it'll quit keeping time. You're going to have people on the grace side. You're going to have people on the true side. The, the, the goal of church leaders is to keep people from busting through the wall on either side. To keep it in balance. Does that make any? Are you with me just a little bit? Okay. This, this to me is something. Now, uh, this, is, this is also very fascinating. I, can't, I got this from uh, David Pawson. P-A-W-S-O-N. I don't know if you ever heard of him or not. But David Pawson, very interesting. He says, Paul... Paul was writing to Gentile believers to keep them from Jewish legalism. James was writing to Jewish believers to keep them from Gentile license. You know, and I, didn't, I never saw this before, but when you understand that James was writing to, to Jewish people to keep them from Gentile license, and Paul was writing to the, the Gentiles to keep them from Jewish legalism, you start understanding why, and see, Martin Luther... He despised James. He said it's a right straw epistle, and he didn't believe it should have been in the canon. Why? Because James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. And, and, and no, Martin Luther's phrase was, the just shall live by faith. Okay? But what we talked about when we looked at, uh, when we looked about at, at identity, what's Identity. Our identity is the power that allows us to pull the cart of grateful obedience, not not, uh, performance, right? So legalism says we're saved by works. License says we're saved without works. I love this. Grace and truth says, liberty says we're saved for good works. Amen? Yeah. Legalism says you're not free to sin. License says you are free to sin. I love this one. Liberty says we are free not to sin. <laughs> Hallelujah. So anyway, there's a diagram. You can't see it there anyway. I'm just, uh, so that in the middle there it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. That is right relationship with God. And the second three is patience, kindness, goodness. That's a right relationship with our brothers and sisters and those around us. And then the next one is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's a right relationship with self. Okay. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. The first three are going to be with God, the second three with our brothers, and the the third three with ourselves. Just something for you to think about. So here you have this diagram. This is some of my brother's material. Here's what I see is the Anabaptist culture is Bible-based, but it's not the gospel. The culture becomes a system and is communicated as the gospel. The Bible is then read and taught through that cultural filter. Okay. And then what look what happens is the Bible has lesser impact as you move along and the culture gets bigger and stronger. You ever you see this? You observe it? Okay? You live it. Here's we need to teach the Bible base of our culture to our children. They must be pointed back to the Bible and taught the truth of the scriptures with practical life application so that a biblical culture is produced in every generation. Yes. Yes. This is what I believe. And I tried to spell out some of the reasons why I believe it. Because I started seeing the flaws of, ref- of Reformed theology. I had a handout. I don't think I brought it along. Uh, yes, Dr. Boyce opened the first session of the conference on Reformed theology in June of 74. Um, I, re- I received this brochure uh, from the Reformed theology in the Alliance Quarterly. It says quote from James Montgomery Boyce. We return to our roots with the theme for our first conference, the doctrines of grace, to proclaim anew the doctrinal themes of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints, basic tenets of Calvinism. See, that's what the evangelical church is built on. I'm not here to tear down other churches. Don't hear me say that. I have very, very dear Evangelical friends that I love dearly and I have fellowship with them, but I won't commune with them. Make any sense? Because you see, they don't understand. And 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 I look at some of my traditional brothers who are caught up in the legalism of their system, and and I can have fellowship with them too. But you know what? They're caught up in a legalistic system because the system is controlling them. Well, we what we must do is we must point people. We must point the next generation. We must go back to the Bible. And we must read it and then teach it from that perspective. So what should we do today? We have, we're faced with questions. How shall we live? What should, how should we, does the Bible tell us how to use law? Yes, it does. How to how use technology? We can find the answers in the scriptures. Uh, that's, a, that's another one of the topic I would have loved to, to talk about. And that would have been on, on uh, inner, inner motivation versus outer motivation. You can't make enough. You can't make enough rules. You can't make enough standards to keep people free, uh, safe from from uh, from the problems that this is going to give them. You have to have inner motivation. You have to have the Holy Spirit guiding you, or or you will not win the victory over that. Okay, sexuality, divorce, war, armed resistance, politics. Okay, our attitude toward the social order. You see, we must go back to the first church. And we will find the answers there. We will find the answers there. We'll find them in the scriptures. We need to study it out. We need to teach it to the next generation. We need to live it. And then we will be salt and light. We will be salt and light in a, in a dark world. Okay, we're going to quit. We must quit. Just thank you so much for allowing me to spend the week with you. Any comments on this topic? We have just maybe a minute or so. What do you think? Uh, this, is, this is throwing a lot of stuff at you. Your thoughts? I want to hear from you that make a little bit of sense I, I was I, I really rushed it Thank you it's so interwoven. it's so interwoven. It's it's so interwoven, intertwined. It's hard to sort it out. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes, thank you. Okay, it's time for the children to come in. Thank you so much. It's been a real joy to be with you.